Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. Welcome to Milk Street Radio from the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. The 1976 Woodlawn Jane Doe case finally getting a break, thanks to recently analyzed pollen found on her clothing, a blend of cedar and mountain hemlock. That news clip from WJC-TV in Baltimore about a Jane Doe case makes one think about modern mysteries or where things come from. Your coffee, your olive oil, your honey, and in this case, an unidentified dead body. Technology is solving the mysteries of life and death. And in today's show, we introduce you to a new tool, and that would be the science of pollen. Lasting millions of years, this simple marker is fighting honey laundering and also solving cold murder cases. This week, it's the pollen detective, the man who knows too much. Now it's time to check in with Raina Javeri from Milk Street, about this week's recipe. Raina, how are you? I'm well, Chris. Thanks. So here's my pet peeve of the week. It's chicken skin. I don't want to go through all these backflips just worrying about the skin. It's too much work. I don't really care about the skin. I want an easy recipe. I want a lot of flavor in the chicken. And I, I want it to be foolproof. And the Chinese do have a method, I know, for poaching chicken. That's right, Chris. At Milk Treat, we went outside for inspiration and we found that the Chinese have been doing this for ages. They don't worry about the skin. 
they in fact use a method called whole bird poaching. Very easy, simple and straightforward and it doesn't deal with the skin at all. So you take the bird, you don't cut it up, you put it in a pot of water and just cook it? Or is there, I mean there is more to it than that, right? There is more to it than that, but not much more. So some people like to do this recipe in plain water, but at Milk Street we take it one step further and flavor the water with a ton of aromatics. And those include fresh ginger, rice wine, some scallions, and fresh cilantro. And that puts a ton of flavor into the water, which permeates the meat, and you get a very tender and flavorful meat at the end. This this is so satisfying. So you don't have to put chicken stock. I mean, you don't need a stock. You make your own stock because the chicken adds flavor to the water. So this goes on, this is what, 25 minutes of just simmering. You turn the heat off. The top is off. You let it sit exactly 45 minutes. The bird's perfectly cooked, and it's about 10 minutes of work at the beginning, right? That's right. You don't have to process the chicken at all. It just goes straight in the pot, and then it's pretty much hands-off, except for the time when you turn off the heat. So the Chinese use a cleaver, chop it into pieces on the bone. Uh, We actually prefer just to take, after cooled for just a few minutes, take the meat off the bone, serve it over an apple cabbage, and also a sauce— So you'd have some soy sauce, some oil, some rice vinegar. The other thing I like is some of the liquid, a quarter cup of the liquid from the broth goes into the sauce because it's got a lot of flavor. It's got a ton of flavor. And this is also a really efficient recipe because you can use that extremely flavorful broth to also cook some rice in and serve it on the side as well. And don't throw it out. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always the person who says, don't throw it out, and then I throw it out. But you should <laughs> freeze it because you can, you can use it as stock, actually, yeah. for another recipe. So, Raina, thank you. This is white poached chicken. It's poaching a whole bird. It takes a little bit over an hour. It's foolproof, and uh, it's much better than trying to get that skin just right. Thanks, Raina. Thank you, Chris. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. You can find this week's recipe on our website, MilkStreetRadio.com. All of our shows are also available on iTunes. Today we're talking about honey. The United States imports 250 million pounds of honey per year, and much of it is actually mislabeled. That can mean the jar of local organic wildflower honey you just bought may in fact come from China. It might also contain traces of antibiotics or pesticides or even heavy metals. To combat the illegal honey trade, Vaughn Bryant, a researcher at Texas A&M, has developed the world's largest database of pollen samples, and he uses them to pinpoint the origins of honey as well as the origins of dead bodies to solve cold murder cases. He even uses pollen to trace terrorists. I started by asking Vaughn about how much honey we import and why we're not sure where it comes from. So we consume a lot more honey per year than any other country, But you also point out that we produce only 150 million pounds uh, domestically but consume 400 million. So we're importing a lot of honey. That's true. We import more than a third of all the honey that is actually used in the United States. And this is where one of the big problems come in because we're not always sure exactly what we're getting when we're importing stuff. And so you're an expert on pollen as a fingerprint to determine a honey source. So... Explain how that works. Okay. If uh, if you are uh, sending Chinese honey to the United States, the pollen in the Chinese honey is going to reflect the plants that grow in China. And many of those plants do not grow in other regions. So by identifying the plants in that honey, we can say that it came from China. And the same would hold true for most other countries. So we can identify what comes from Canada and Mexico and Europe and Asia and Africa and so forth. So it is the pollen that uh, gives us a clue as to where honey comes from. And the obvious question is, why do we care where honey comes from? Well, it becomes important because the United States has restrictions and tariffs on honey from certain countries. For example, we have a 250% tariff on Chinese honey because China is the world's leading producer of honey. And in the past, we have caught them dumping honey on the world market that has undercut the ability of our domestic beekeepers to sell honey. So there's a big tariff on Chinese honey. Now the Chinese have to get rid of this honey, so they have figured out other ways to get it into the United States by circumventing normal uh, shipping rates. 
Yeah, I think you wrote or I read that Malaysian beekeepers uh, produce 45,000 pounds, but somehow in a mysterious mathematical formula, they export 37 million pounds to the United States in just one year. So perhaps some of that honey is coming from China. That's true. Last year, the federal government estimated that there was 91 million pounds of illegal honey that entered the United States. That's an estimate, and it's usually considered to be a conservative estimate. So there's a tremendous amount of illegal honey that is actually coming into the United States. And the uh, federal government uh, catches a little bit of it, but uh, it's much like the drug traffic. A lot of that stuff is it's just getting into the United States in other ways. So I go to the supermarket. I see honey. It says it's from Malaysia or wherever. Uh, you say that 70% of the honey we buy in stores doesn't actually come from where it says on the label, um, which is quite a large percentage. How do government inspectors or whomever, you, do the testing? Do people go into stores and take bottles off the shelf like they might do in Europe for olive oil? Well, that's one of the big problems. You're, you're right. Uh, we have gone all over the United States and we have pulled honey off of shelves in supermarkets and in, even on roadside stands at uh, little farmer markets and stuff. And we're finding a tremendous number of samples do not match what is on the label. And so if you pick up a uh, jar of honey and it says it's from Indonesia or it's from the Amazon or it's from South America, uh, it's a crapshoot. It may or may not be from that area. In fact, we did a program for a Canadian broadcasting company in which we went out and bought five jars of local honey, all of which is supposed to be local in Texas honey. Three of those were not even from Texas. So, uh, it, as I said, it's a crapshoot, and, and uh, it, it, there is no effective way of determining whether or not you're actually buying what's in the jar, except by doing an analysis. Why doesn't the FDA care? Because I gather... Some of the honey, let's say from China, they've found sometimes it can contain antibiotics, uh, contain pesticides, contain heavy metals, uh, drugs used to stop bacterial epidemics. So the consumer would care, I think, where it came from. Why does the FDA not care? Well, uh, the big problem with the FDA, we've talked to people in the FDA who, of course, will not reveal who they are, but they've basically said one of the reasons that they don't want regulations is because they don't want the responsibility of having to test it all. I mean, it sounds silly, but literally the FDA says, look, we don't want that responsibility. So if there is a law that says that all honey has to be what's in the jar. It's going to be like Europe, where you're going to have to set up all kinds of agencies where you've got people that are testing this stuff. And in the United States, there's nobody doing it. So the FDA, as far as the FDA is concerned, they're happy. So, you know. That is the stupidest <laughs> excuse I've ever heard. I mean, it's sort of like someone, the, the Justice Department saying, we don't want to make bank robbing illegal because if it were illegal, then we have to prosecute everybody, right? Well, here's, here's my analogy. Uh, if you went into a restaurant and you wanted to impress your guest and the waiter comes over and says, look, we've got this really good wine that was bottled in 1995 in Bordeaux. It's $1,000 a bottle. You say, great, bring me a bottle. I'm going to impress my guest. Well, what if later on you find out it was bottled last year in Napa Valley? Aren't you going to be a little uh, disturbed about that? You've paid $1,000 for junk. And the same thing is happening in honey. People buy... <laughs> they buy Tupelo honey, they buy buckwheat honey, they buy orange blossom honey, they buy all kinds of these exotic honeys, including Maluka. And very often, it's not what's in the bottle. So these people are paying premium prices for junk. And uh, that's, that's the problem right there. They're getting ripped off. Explain this to me. So there are plants, for example, in China that don't exist anywhere else, or there are plants with a particular genetic makeup that you can identify because that they're unique to that region of the world. Well, let me let me use a, an analogy here. Suppose uh, I was looking at a honey that is supposed to have been produced in Michigan, okay? And let's say in analyzing the honey, I find a lot of plants that look like they could be Michigan, but then there's also a lot of eucalyptus and there's a lot of of uh, palm pollen in there. Well, palm and eucalyptus do not grow in Michigan, so right. the, something's wrong with that honey. I see. And the same thing would hold true for honey samples that I'm looking at in Texas if they had spruce and fir I and see, I see. things like that. You see, so 
uh, certain regions of the world uh, are known for certain kinds of plants, and there are about 350,000 different plants worldwide, and some of these are very specific to very specific regions. So those are the kind of clues we use to figure out where honey comes from. Let's do some numbers. Uh, 76% of samples in grocery stores had all their pollen removed. So I guess through filtering and maybe heating as well, I mean, I, I actually raise bees, that you can remove the pollen and therefore remove the ability to trace its origins. Yes, that's very much like taking sandpaper and filing off your fingerprints. Because what you do if you take all the pollen out of the honey, then, uh, you know, it's very difficult to tell where the honey comes from because you have taken all of those very key markers out of the honey. Now, it is possible to do DNA. It's possible to do isotopes. It's possible to do uh, flavonoid studies and other things like that. But all of those are extremely expensive. So pollen is the easiest, quickest, and cheapest way to determine where honey comes from. But if you take the pollen out, that's a crapshoot. We have no idea where it comes from. So if three-quarters of the grocery store honeys had the pollen removed, and I guess 100% of drugstore honey, they're taking it out specifically so that you can't figure out where it came from, or would there be other reasons to remove the pollen? Well, okay. Uh, (laughs) The federal government allows you to take the pollen out because it is true that occasionally pollen that is in honey can act as a nucleus around which crystals can form. And sometimes when you look at honey, you find that at the bottom of the honey jar, you've got crystallization. You know, you've got some crystals. Now, of course, all you really have to do is heat it for a little while and all of it disperses. But nevertheless, a lot of people, when they go into stores, are not going to buy honey if it has a crystalline form in the bottom. So the federal government says, okay, you can take the pollen out because we do know that in some unusual cases, a little bit of pollen can cause crystals to form. But crystallization is primarily caused by two other factors. One is the amount of water in the in the honey, and the second thing is the temperature in which it's stored. So those two are like 90% of the problem for crystallization, and maybe 5% is from pollen. So when we call certain companies, you know, like Subi Company, and we ask them, how come none of your honey ever has pollen? You know what they say? Basically, that's our business. So what, what are they doing? They're buying 50-gallon drums of imported yeah. honey and sticking it in the Texas jar, <laughs> I guess. You, you, got a, you got a local person who's bottling and selling honey to grocery stores locally, okay? Right. Now, he doesn't have enough honey, so he right. buys it on right. the open market. Right. And so he buys, he buys cheap honey from somebody else. He puts it in the bottle, and he says, oh, I think these people are going to want Texas honey, so I'm going to put Texas wildflower on the label. And sure enough, people buy it because they think it's Texas wildflower. Shouldn't there just be a national truth and labeling law no matter what it is you're selling? Yeah. Well, most other countries have a truth and labeling. The United States and Canada are two of the countries that don't. I raise bees for 15 years, and I, I also buy honey, different kinds, because I'm just interested. I noticed that there's a huge difference in flavor between different kinds of flowering plants. So can you give us a couple pointers about honeys that have very distinctive flavors that you could immediately recognize just by taking a taste? Well, let me give you two examples. First of all, there are individuals who claim that they are excellent honey tasters. In other words, they can taste honey and say, oh, this is Tupelo. Oh, this is orange blossom. Oh, this is cactus. This is mesquite. This is acacia. Okay. Guess what? (laughs) We've (laughs) We've done parallel pollen tests on these, and they're wrong half the time. Okay, that's the first problem. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Okay, the second problem is in order to get all of the pollen out of honey, you have to heat it very hot. You have to force it through diatomaceous earth to extract all the pollen. And when you heat it and do that, you're going to lose 90% of the flavonoids. Now, the flavonoids are part of the important part that give you the taste. And so as a result, the honey before and after, after it has been, you know, pollen removed is going to taste completely different. So that's part of the problem, too. So you got these two different problems. You've used pollen analysis to convict criminals and terrorists. And I just have to ask you, how do you do that with pollen analysis? Uh, I'll be honest with you. After doing honey analysis since 1975, all the way up until now, uh, I <laughs> it gave me a tremendous insight into pollen types from all over the world. Now, after 
when uh, the World Trade Center was bombed by the airplanes, the federal government was panicky and they were willing to try anything. And somebody suggested, well, maybe we could go and analyze the things that those people had in their cars and in their apartments and figure out where they came from. So I started working for the federal government doing forensics of maiming for terrorist properties. And uh, hmm. then, of course, we entered, went into Afghanistan. We went into Iraq, and I started doing a lot of stuff for the Department of Defense. And then after that, I worked for the Homeland Security, where we were trying to get to the drug cartels in South and Central America. So we can isolate uh, pollen and cocaine and methamphetamines and heroin and marijuana and pretty much tell where they're coming from, which cartel is hmm. uh, selling them. You could be a character on Breaking Bad. <laughs> Pretty good. Um, so give me a couple of examples. I mean, just set up an actual example so we understand how you do it. Okay. Here's a, here's a situation where in 1979, there was a young girl who was murdered in Caledonia County, New York, which is near Rochester. And it was a cold case. And they were trying for since 1979 until 2006, they were trying to figure out who she was. They had no idea who she was. And uh, they had thousands of leads. They didn't lead anywhere. And then finally in 2006, they, they got a new uh, person who walked in and they said, hey, well, did you ever try pollen analysis? Well, nobody in Rochester had ever heard of doing this. So the next thing that happened, they sent me all of this uh, clothing that had been on this young girl that they had stored since 1979. I looked at the clothing and looked at the pollen in it, and I said, hey, she either came from Southern California or she came from Southern Florida. And then more recently, I don't know if you've been reading about this, but there's the baby doe case where they found this uh, two-year-old that was in a plastic bag thrown out into the harbor uh, near Boston, and they had no idea where she came from or who she was. They tried everything. They tried DNA. They tried fingerprints. Nothing worked. So finally they sent the clothing to one of my students who does this, and he looked at it, and he said, ah, oh, based on the pollen, she probably lived within several blocks of the Arboretum in Boston. Let, let me follow up on that. So because the mix of pollen, because the Arboretum has so many different kinds of plants and trees. Right. That was a unique mix of plants? Yes, but here's the deal. That particular baby had two different kinds of cedrus, that cedar. They had two different kinds of cedrus. There's only one place on the entire northeastern coast where you could find both of those cedars, and that's the Arboretum in Boston. I, I have a feeling that about 10 minutes after the show airs, you're going to get calls from a couple of networks because this is like, this is CSI. This is this is really good. Uh, can I ask a question about pollen? Pollen lasts forever. I mean, if you had a 100-year-old case, would the pollen on the clothing still be identifiable? We've looked at pollen in mummies that have come from Egypt. Pollen is extremely durable, and it it can be destroyed. It can be oxidized, but under the right environment, it'll last forever. Forensic pollen analysis was born in the late 1950s when a murder was solved in Austria using a pair of muddy boots. A geologist found pollen from willow, alder, and spruce, as well as rare hickory. Only a small area of Austria has this combination of trees, and so the suspect confessed pretty quickly. Today, there are about 350,000 different pollen grains, so think of pollen as a very complex fingerprint. And it's one of the most damage-resistant organic compounds on Earth, which means you can't throw your clothes in the washing machine to get rid of it. The future of pollen analysis is pretty bright. Today, scientists are cracking cases involving art forgery, narcotics trafficking, bank robberies, counterfeit pharmaceuticals, arson, and lots more. As one pollen expert said, quote, if I were advising criminals, I'd tell them to confess to everything except the final act, because placing them at the scene is only a matter of time. You're listening to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. Coming up after the break, we taste the new dry German Rieslings, and we chat to Andy Ricker, owner of Pock Pock Restaurants, about the four kitchen gadgets he simply can't live without. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is 
the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. Welcome back to Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Now let's chat with Andy Ricker, author of the Pock Pock Cookbook about the kitchen tools he simply can't live without. Well, the, the number one thing I can't live without is a mortar and pestle. It's essential to Thai cooking and, and Southeast Asian cooking in general. So that I'd say if there was one tool in the kitchen that I would just couldn't live without, it would be a mortar and pestle. Can, can I ask you about that? I noticed that some from from Thailand are, are wooden. Other people have stone mortar and pestles. Which one do you like and why? Well, there's also a clay mortar and pestle. And all, all the different uh, mortars and pestles have slightly different uses. So the granite mortar and pestle is used for pounding pastes like curry pastes, uh, nem pricks, uh, that, that type of thing. Things that, that, are, that you're grinding hard ingredients and you want them to, to turn into a finely mashed paste. Um, and then the, the wooden mortar and pestle is a northern Thai thing and it's generally used to make salads in like papaya salad, 
uh, and other solids. There's a lot of them in Thailand that are made in a, in a large mortar and pestle. And then there's the clay version, which is from Isan or northeastern Thailand. And that's also used to make solids, and generally speaking. What's next up on your list? There's a type of peeler you can get at most Asian markets, and it's used for shredding. So it's got kind of a corrugated blade, and it's the pull style. It's not, it's not the, the old-fashioned carrot peeler that we used to get back when we were kids. It's one of the pull style ones. It looks like a slingshot. And those are used for peeling and shredding papaya. It's also used for mango. You can use it for carrots, cucumbers, anything that you want to shred. And it's a handheld tool. It costs very little. It's made out of plastic with a blade. Uh, lasts for a long time. And it basically takes the place of uh, the very traditional way of doing papaya salad, which, which involves chopping with a knife and then cutting. And so it's a very versatile tool in the Southeast Asian kitchen. So we have the granite mortar and pestle. We have the slingshot-style corrugated slicer. Uh, what's next? Uh, the next thing would be, uh, and I think this is probably a, a kind of a vital tool for a cook of any, any type of cuisine, which is a digital scale. A lot of recipes call for relatively small amounts of stuff that's pretty strongly flavored in the, in the Southeast Asian cooking. So it, people tend to have their own idea of what a tablespoon looks like right? So maybe they use a heaping tablespoon or a, like a, a scant tablespoon uh, of something that will alter the recipe drastically just by going up and down a little bit. So by having a scale, you can measure precisely the amount that you're putting in. The cookbooks that, that I write uh, all use uh, weights when it's appropriate for non-liquid ingredients. And the good news is that they're, they've become quite inexpensive. You can get them online through uh, various different online markets. They range anywhere from like $15 up to $30, $40 each. They run off of a battery. Uh, they last a long time, and they're pretty accurate. So that, that would be a, a big one for me. Okay, digital scale, uh, the slicer, that is the peeler, the granite mortar and pestle, uh, anything else? Yeah, uh, a, a spider, uh, the, the sort of long-handled uh, Chinese version of a skimmer or a, a strainer. And it's used for picking uh, hot food or cold food out of liquid, typically, or oil. And they're indispensable for doing things like blanching small quantities of vegetable or noodles. Or, uh, for instance, if you want to pick things out of the water that, that shouldn't be in there, you can use it to skim fluvium off the top. So, and they, and they come in various different coarseness of mesh. Like you can get a very, very fine one that works great for straining, uh, say deep fried garlic out of oil. And then they have some that are, that are a little bit coarser mesh that work well for noodles and small vegetables. And they have some that are very coarse mesh that work great for like picking up pieces of fried chicken or fried fish that type of thing. And they're made out of various different materials. You can get them made out of brass that's good for water. You can get them made out of steel, and that's good for deep frying. And they come in all matter of shapes and sizes, from enormous round ones to kind of little dinky square ones. It's, they're, just go to your local Asian supermarket, and you'll find a, a broad array. So just to sum up, the granite mortar and pestle, a digital scale, a peeler slicer that has a corrugated blade, and finally a bunch of different spiders for picking stuff out of hot oil or hot water. Andy Ricker, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Now let's take a few cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Malton. She's the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, how are you? I'm really good. How about you? <laughs> I'm always good. Ready to take calls? I am ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Uh, can I ask who's calling? Yeah, this is Jonathan Phineas calling from Los Angeles. You have a question for us? Yeah, well, when I was a kid back in uh, New York City, back in the early 60s, you know, when the cocktail generation was in full swing, well, every once in a while, my grandparents would bring me to a cocktail party you know, back when kids behave themselves. And, of course, you know, I'd drink uh, Shirley Temple's, and then I'd pass out on the guest room bed next to a bunch of coats. But before I did, I'd gorge myself on hors d'oeuvres. They had really fancy hors d'oeuvres back then, like, you know, pedophores and fondue and 
crab rangoon. I don't know if you remember that. I sure do. <laughs> do you? Yes. <laughs> anyway, so back then, you know, Danish modern was all the rage, and the food reflected the Danish European scene. I remember one of those hors d'oeuvres that they always served at these parties were square deviled eggs. Whoa. And I haven't seen them since. I desperately want a square. I do too. I do too. I seem to remember the Eddington egg cuber. And you put your hard boiled, already cooked hard boiled egg in there, and you'd squish it in and you'd leave it there for an hour. One egg, one hour. One machine. Is this like like you screw it down like a press yeah. of some kind? Yeah. Uh, uh. And, but you could only do one at a time. Now, can you imagine if yeah. you're having a whole bunch no. of people over? It yeah. doesn't seem very effective. Weird, but, um, you know, might be fun <laughs> if you're having two people over no, for a cocktail. So, someone's got to have invented the six-egg press, right? I, if you go I, to Amazon. I see yet one more thing that you need to do, Chris Kimball. Is invent. <laughs> is you're this, not busy enough. I see this, a Milk Street egg cuber, don't you think? I don't think so. Any rate, Jonathan, I think we need to revive the cocktail hour. I, I don't think that <laughs> do should be too. talked about in the How past. How about right now? Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, just because it was a, a civilized, you know, from the talking point of view. I don't mean, you know, tons of alcohol imbibed. The rest of my life should be devoted to reinstituting cocktail hour. It's, well, it's civilization at its best. Well, it is. I mean, for me, cocktail hour should be sitting and talking. Of course, it's nice to have a glass of wine while you're doing that. There we go. That's our new movement. Yes. Well, Thank you. Okay. Thanks for calling. My pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me. Welcome to Milk Street. How can we help you? I have a quick question. I recently ran across a recipe, a pie recipe, that called for tapioca flour in the filling uh-huh. as a thickener. Sure. Now, that's not a common flour. I can't find it in the grocery stores in my small town. And I'm wondering, what could I use as a substitute? What is tapioca flour? And would I use a substitute in the same amounts or more or less? I use minute tapioca, which is in every supermarket, and on the back of the box, it'll say one tablespoon per cup of fruit for a fruit pie, for example, which is much too much. Okay, and I use tapioca, too, so that I forget the flour and just use the regular minute tapioca. You can do that, and I would say one tablespoon per two cups of fruit for me I think is a better texture. So four cups of fruit, I use two tablespoons of minted tapioca. But Sarah is a, uh, you're a starch expert. I don't know if I'm a starch expert. but I, mean, <laughs> I don't want to be, Sarah. You can have that title. Yeah, well, thank you. That's right. At any rate, the thing about tapioca flour, the reason everybody loves it, I'm not a baker, but a lot of my baking friends just love it, is because it gives you a clear liquid, mm-hmm. whereas the uh, grain starches give you a cloudy liquid. It's just not as pretty, especially when they get cold. But if you, for some reason, did want to use tapioca flour, I guess the ratio is two tablespoons of tapioca of flour for every tablespoon of cornstarch, but I like Chris's solution much more. It's easy. I, by, by the way, you can throw minute tapioca in a food processor. And grind it up? And grind it up. And the only time minute tapioca is a problem is when you have a lot of stop pie because those little tiny beads of tapioca can get really hard. So if you have a top crust, that's Double a full crust, crust yeah. then you're fine because it'll break down. If it's exposed to heat directly without the crust in between, then I would just throw it in a food processor blender and just turn it into flour. That's the I think I'll just stick with my minute tapioca yeah. yes. then. Yeah, yes. well, yeah one uh, tablespoon for two cups. It has eyeball look, look yeah. about it, but it doesn't bother me. No, so. no. no. It, it works great. It's just, you know, use half as much as they say on the back of the box, that's all. Okay. One tablespoon per two cups of fruit. That's okay, what you should fine. use. Yeah. Okay. Right. I appreciate your help. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having Bye. me. Bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a call. One eight five five four Bowtie. That's eight five five four two six nine eight four three. You can also email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Uh, can I ask who's calling? My name is Mary. Hi, Mary. Where are you calling from? Kansas City, Kansas. Nice. And uh, what is your question? I have recently acquired, as my mother downsizes, some corningware that I remember from my childhood. I know kind of what it's good for, and I've had some spectacular failures as well. Tell me about the best ways to use it and things that it doesn't work as well. But wait, 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 wait. You said spectacular failures, which is my yes. favorite topic. So like what? Like what happened? Um, it doesn't sear well. 
I know you can use it on the stovetop, but it doesn't seem to sear very well, and I've ruined some meat that way. And I ruined a batch of caramelized onions, yeah. little pearl onions, and it took me forever to get it out of the pan. I'm kind of looking for ideas that will help me maximize its benefits. Well, I think it's more for like casseroles. I mean, it's not for sautéing, right? Right. Yeah. There's very few metals that are really good conductors of heat. And sometimes you find them and they're combined with other things. So number one is copper. Uh, but it's very expensive, it's very heavy, and it takes maintenance. That sears meat beautifully. That's way up there. And the second best one is aluminum. All clad in a lot of these have triple ply. Yeah. The core is usually aluminum. Aluminum or copper. Or I copper. Think they have and a high end. And then they have stainless steel. Yeah. I mean, stainless steel is a good coating for the inside of the right. pan. Right, but it's a useless conductor. It's a useless conductor, or just buy a huge you know, 12-inch cast iron skillet, right. or carbon steel pan, which is my new favorite. Right which does a great job. So well, if you're so, going to saute and you want a lot of heat, you'd have to use that kind One of, of those pan. kind of pans. This is more casserole A territory. casserole thing. I wish I knew what it was made out of. Is it glass or what is it? Uh, Corningware is made from pyroceramic. Yeah. My understanding, it was kind of developed by accident, and it ended up being used on nose cones in space vehicles. So it can take high heat on the stove top, but it looks like it's a ceramic it's not a metal. Right. There is one advantage to it, and that is if you use, like, Pyrex, we've had problems with. So if you take something hot in Pyrex dish and put it on a counter that's wet, talk about spectacular failures. We've had massive explosions sometimes. Oh, yes, yes. So, I've seen that happen. Or a big, like, eight-cup measuring cup, and it's hot, and you on a wet surface, boom. So, yeah, it's, it's safer than that. I would fundamentally use it for casseroles. Casseroles, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't use it for Don't try to make it stone. do something yeah. it's not supposed to yeah. do. Right. It'd be frustrating. Yes. <laughs> okay. It's kind of nice that I can prepare you know, parts of the casserole that need pre-cooking, and then I can just put everything in and then slide it in the oven. And that's nice. Yeah. Because yes. then you've only got one dish. Right. It's good for baking. Yes. 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 Okay, Mary. Thank, thank you. you. Well, thank you. Pleasure. This is Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. You can find our shows on iTunes, also on our website, which is MilkStreetRadio.com. After the break, I discover the whole new world of dry German Rieslings. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. It's time for a wine tasting with our expert Stephen Muse from Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge. Uh, it's it's warm. Uh, oh, we're yeah. in, the, in the back of Formaggio. It's quite, yeah, quite yeah. warm here. Yeah. And we have, I hope, some nicely chilled white wines uh, to taste. Yeah, we do. We've got wines that are really beautiful. These are all German Riesling. And there's one thing that everybody thinks they know about German wines. And I'm going to ask you if you know what that is. What do you think you know about well, German wines before anything else? I, I know I know what I'm supposed to say, because when I say to my wife, I have a Riesling, she says, no, I don't like sweet wines. Yes, yeah, okay. Now, her mother's from Austria, and she knows better. But, but Well, that's because Austrian Rieslings are all dry. They're all dry. Right. But uh, that's the first thing people think. Okay. Well, um, exactly right. So we have our Germans on a single shelf here in Formaggio, and I think that they really don't get enough attention because people look at the shelf and they think, well, I'm not in the mood for a sweet wine tonight or I don't need one. And so they get overlooked. But quite a large percentage of German wine now is being made in a drier style, a much drier style. The wines are quite exciting. So we're going to have a taste of some of these wines today. But Chris, first, I want you to begin with a con- what we'll okay. call a control wine, which is a very traditional, a really beautiful museum-quality mm. example of Mosul Riesling from J.J. Prum, done in the sweeter style. So you're tasting that now. It's quite good. Yes. It's, quite, it's actually delicious, but it is yeah. quite sweet. Yes. Okay, so let's have you taste this. This is the Donhoff Riesling, and I just want you to look, take a good look at the label, and I want Trocken. you to... Trocken. Yes. Right, and that is the word that our listeners ought to be looking for on a bottle of German so wine. T-R-O-C-K-E-N. Right, because that means dry, and that's the word that they're using on the label to designate mm. this drier style of Riesling. How is that? Totally different. Mm-hmm. Quite dry, actually. Yep. It's very trocken. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, keep, on, keep on trocken. Well, <laughs> mm. Maybe, you know, stimulating in a way that the sweeter wines aren't oh, quite, or maybe, m- maybe a little bit more appetizing, right? So to go back to the question about numbers, the requirement for being able to label a German wine trocken is a maximum of 9 grams per liter of Mm. residual sugar. So we were talking about something, I'm guessing, in the neighborhood of 40 with that control wine, Mm -hmm. and now you tasted one that is 9 or below. Uh, And you tasted the Donhoff Riesling, which I think is really lovely wine. Let's go on to number two. This is the Keller Rheinhessen. Riesling from 2015. Mm. It's a fuller, mm-hmm. more fruit to it mm-hmm. than the first one. Quite that's very pretty, nice. pretty zippy acidity. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Can I ask a question? So when people hear the word Riesling, what should they think in, in terms of the character of the wine or identifying mm. what it is? It, there is no way of identifying, describing it. Well, I think Riesling has an inimitable profile. Difficult to describe. I think one of the things that people always point out about Riesling is the purity of the fruit. And I think you really get that Mm -hmm. here. Very pure kind of fruit. Floral elements. Riesling is an aromatic grape, so you often get very beautiful aromas of something like citrus, something kind of piney occasionally. In older Riesling, get those notes that we describe as petrol or kerosene, which sounds hideous, but in the tiny amounts that you get them, are really delightful. 
So if you're talking about Austrian Riesling, as I said earlier, they're typically always going to be dry. In Alsace, there's some variation. But let's, let's stick okay. to Germany today. So and we have a third, third right. one, and last right. one is? Well, this is pretty fancy stuff. This is the von Winning mm-hmm. um, Forster Ungeheuer. This is uh, a category of wine in Germany that is called Grosses Gewachs, and this means first growth. So if you see the letters GG, and I'm pointing to them right here mm-hmm. on a bottle, that means that it's quite an elevated level of quality. It means it comes from a single vineyard, and it's very elegant and fancy stuff. This bottle is actually about $75. <laughs> I guess I should like it. Well, you, you know I noticed about it? It doesn't have a lot of acidity. It's very smooth mm-hmm. at the end. It's not peppy. It's not tangy. Yeah. It, well, von Winning is sort of known for making mm. sort of stylistically idiosyncratic wines. They're richer. Uh, there's more exotic fruit in them mm. and a little less of the zip and acid that we normally associate with Riesling from Germany. Okay, so I, I've tasted three Rieslings, and I started with a control that was very sweet. These are 25% as much sugar, roughly, right? And they were all very dry. So, so what's my takeaway here? So I can buy most Rieslings from Germany today will be dry? Here's a takeaway. What is, what is on the shelves in your retail shop is not necessarily a reflection of what Germans are drinking or what the whole trend is. But you really can't go into a good wine shop today in the United States and fail to find these dry Rieslings because, well, they're pretty trendy right now. So all, can, all I do is look for Trocken. You can on the look label. for Trocken. You can look for the double G on the label if you've got the wherewithal to spend a little bit more money. But yes, Trocken is the key word. The other important thing to remember is that if you're not an enthusiast for sweet wine, or the more traditional, sweeter style, there's now a whole world of German wine that's open to you that is made in this drier style. It's not just Riesling. It could be Silvaner or Gewürztraminer. And, of course, Riesling is just a magnificent wine to pair with lots of different kinds of seafood, lots of different Asian cuisines. I personally think it's completely unsurpassed with sweet corns and lobster dishes. Just nothing like it. Or, as they do in Vermont, cheddar cheese and Ritz crackers. <laughs> I think it goes really swell with that. Well, it may. You'd know better than I. Stephen, thank you, and I, I'm taking the $75 GG bottle home. Thank you I so much. I think you much. should. Okay. This is Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. You can find our shows on iTunes, also on our website, which is MilkStreetRadio.com. Now it's time to take some more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am very ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. How can we help you? Yes. Hi, Chris. My name is Ellen, and I'm calling about a question with eggplant. I love to grill eggplant. I like to bring out the uh, smoky flavor in it, and every time I grill it, it blackens completely instead of getting those nice grill marks that you see when it's presented to you in a restaurant. I take the eggplant, I slice it a half inch thick, I salt it, I let it drain in a colander, I pat it very dry, I put extra virgin olive oil, I brush it lightly on, a little bit of salt and pepper, and I use a charcoal grill, but instead of it getting the nice grill marks, it blackens completely, and if I take it off when it just is at the point with the nice grill marks, it's not cooked through. Is this a really hot fire? Probably, yes. And I don't use a grilled vegetable basket. I just put it directly on the grills of a charcoal grill. I ran into this guy six months ago called Meathead Goldwyn, who's uh, from the Chicago area, and he just wrote a book about grilling. And he said there are very few times you want to grill over really high heat. And so it turns out even with chicken, I now do over medium-low, more time means things don't cook too fast, and you will get the grill marks over time. So I think one answer would be use medium heat. Yeah, Sarah? I, I wouldn't ever use high heat right. unless you wanted to do just a quick, you know, crisscross on both sides and then move it to indirect heat and let it finish cooking on the side right. of the grill where there's no heat at all, just from the residual heat on the side of the grill. I think that's your biggest problem because eggplant has a lot of natural sugar, and sugar is what really caramelizes 
and, you know, gives it that dark, dark color. So that's all. I think it's just very simple because everything else you said sounds completely right. Don't you agree, Chris? The only other thing sometimes I do is when you salt it, leaving the colander for, what, 20 minutes, half an hour, Sometimes I do press the slices between layers of paper towels, and that gets some of the extra moisture out. That's the only slight thing I might do differently. But I agree with Sarah. I'd almost never use high heat unless it's a quick sear on both sides. Okay. So I need to be patient and let my coals die down even more. Or just have a hot side of the grill and a much cooler or no charcoal side of the grill. You know, okay, indirect and indirect. Or, or yeah. two level. Lots yeah. of coals on one, just a little coal on the other. And you know what? I wanted to comment on something interesting because I just finished a cookbook and I did a lot of research about salt, which we just love. I think it's the single most important ingredient, you know, used the right way. You know, people have been salting eggplant for years and the idea is it tamps down the bitterness. In the research I did, I understand that salt does that for everything. And the reason it's a plus is not just because it tamps down the bitterness, but all those other flavors come through. And if you have a bitter cup of coffee, you add a little salt to it, and it makes it wonderful. You know what's interesting, though? I love that bitterness. (laughs) But I'm glad to know that. Thank you. The older we get, the more bitter we are. I know. Ellen, so at any rate, I think this will solve your problem. It's a very simple one. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, and best of luck to you with your new venture. Thank you, Ellen. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. How can we help you? Hi, Chris. My name's Martin Jacoby, and I've got a question about mustard. I'm very allergic to it. Okay. In any form, any kind. And when it's used in a recipe, I can usually come up with something to substitute for it or at least leave it out. But my problem is, is when it's used as an emulsifier. And I'm wondering if there's some sort of substitute when it's used in that case. I remember Cook's Illustrated, they used mayonnaise. They tested it against mustard and some other stuff. Well, wait a second, there is an issue here. My sister is very allergic to mustard. And the trouble is that mustard is in so many things because it is yeah, an emulsifier, yeah. but also that because it's a flavoring. So, like, you're not, in, uh-oh, you're not going to tell me it's in mayonnaise. It is in mayonnaise. No, yes. come on. It's in mayonnaise. Really? Yes. Because it's an emulsifier. It's in a lot of mayonnaise. You know, you just have to read the label, but even so, you're not always sure. Because sometimes they say spices, you know, and you don't know what that means. So mayonnaise is really not the best solution. Okay, pasteurized eggs. Well, eggs, of course. Just Uh, use the egg yolk. Yes. and it's uh, It's something like only 1 in 20,000 eggs is contaminated anyway. So if you're not under 5 or over 80, I'd say use a regular egg yolk. Are you feeling lucky? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know Sarah was a gambler. (laughs) Here. <laughs> well, okay. you know, what can I tell you? But, I mean, there's other things you could use. For example, probably grated horseradish, grated wasabi. Both, well, wasabi, really, the stuff that we get even in sushi restaurants is actually just grated dried horseradish with green food coloring. Really? Yeah. True wasabi is extremely rare and extremely expensive. They get it fresh and shave it over your sushi at the last minute because it's a very ephemeral. But anyway, I think those things would work. But I've read also that mashed garlic might help with emulsifying. Yeah, I've heard that too. And honey is another one. Honey works. That's if you want to add sugar to whatever you're emulsifying. I think molasses. Viscous like honey, sure. Yeah, I sure. think molasses also works, yeah. Yeah, but I also wonder if perhaps a thick puree of something, like a vegetable, might help a bit. Or, okay, I'm going to blow your mind. Sarah was French trained. Right. This is just going to drive you crazy. Even when it's French trained, like emulsions are the essence of a salad dressing. I don't care about emulsified salad dressings. No, you can just shake it and yeah, get, a, yeah. get a temporary emulsion. Yeah. I think that like when you eat out at a restaurant, it's a minefield. But one of the places, Italian food, I think you're pretty safe, right? Nope, nope, nope. No, no, no. No? It could be in the marinara sauce. It could be an Italian sausage. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah. That shark lurks in- everywhere. Now I'm going to hit you on your home turf. If you go to a little bistro cafe in Paris... If you watch them do their salad, they don't make it an emulsion. They have some oil, and they have a little bit of vinegar, and they just toss it and everything yeah. else. And so yeah. I would dispense with it or get pasteurized yolk or molasses. Or honey or, or, honey. or yeah. grated horseradish. So, or see, we've grated, helped. Yeah, we have helped. My Six goodness. choices. Good for us. Yeah. Okay. Martin, <laughs> hopefully that's kind of helpful, maybe yeah. a little bit. Yes, okay. it was. Okay. Thanks for calling. Okay. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. This is Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. You can find our shows on iTunes, also on our website, which is MilkStreetRadio.com. This week's cooking lesson from Milk Street is about marinades, why they don't work, and what you can do about it. So you have a piece of chicken or a piece of pork, and you want to marinate it. 
and you want to do that to tenderize the food and also add some flavor. So you might bathe it for a few hours in some Italian salad dressing, for example. It doesn't work. It doesn't work because it takes a very long time for a marinade to get into meat, about one-tenth of one centimeter in three hours. So it's just not going to get in very far. The other problem is the flavorings in marinades, take garlic, for example, those hydrogen ions, and ions just a molecule with a charge, there are very few of them. And so if they get in at all, you're not going to actually taste the difference. So marinades don't work. Brining, on the other hand, which means salt, sodium chloride dissolved in water, does work very well. And that's because the sodium and chloride ions are electrically charged, and they're attracted into the food because proteins are also electrically charged. So it actually gets into the meat at a fairly good rate. The other thing is that sodium and chloride ions are very numerous. There's 50,000 more of them than what you'd expect from, let's say, hydrogen ions in garlic. So you have a huge concentration. Move in faster, more concentration, the salt gets in. So marinades don't work, brides do. What do you do? Well, if you want to marinate food, essentially marinate with a brine. That means something very salty. Fish sauce and soy sauce are two excellent choices, especially for a thin piece of meat. They'll get into the meat, they'll add flavor, and you'll get a great taste. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can hear more of our weekly shows on iTunes and also on our very own website, MilkStreetRadio.com. That's also where we post each week's recipe. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugertz. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange. Mm-hmm.